Welcome to Killer. I am David and Craig is here with me. We are back after a long hiatus. How you doing, buddy? I am doing exceptional. How are you doing? I am doing exceptional as well. Not to mention we're also not recording at four o'clock in the morning, so I probably sound a lot more excited than usual. Yeah, that is a big change and hopefully we stick to that change because four o'clock four <laughs> o'clock in the morning sucks. Just be honest. It really does, but it's hard to get a house that is silent when you have a little family running around here. (laughs) So anyway, needless to say, uh, we have a jam-packed show for you today, and we're just going to get rolling right into it and take it away, Craig. Yeah, just like old times, you're listening to Killer, and this is the Case Update Show. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. All right, that takes us to case number two, Molly Tibbetts. Since we last chatted on Molly Tibbetts, uh, just to give a quick recap, July 18th, 2018, Molly Cecilia Tibbetts went for a run near her home in Brooklyn, Iowa, and that would be the last time anyone saw her again. During her run, she was stalked by 24-year-old Christian Bahina Rivera. Surveillance video evidence would show Rivera's car tailing Tibbetts during her run, leading police to investigate him. Rivera would ultimately lead police to her body in a cornfield located in Poshwick County on August 21st. He would be charged with her murder. So we covered that case. One of the first cases we actually covered, it was our second case. And ever since then, things have been a little bit slow going. However, we do have a few updates. Craig, what do you got? Yeah, the first update we have is from the Des Moines Register dated January 30th, 2020. And this is in response to some robocaller activity. The neo-Nazi podcaster who allegedly used Iowa college student Molly Tibbetts' death to promote a white nationalist message in a 2018 robocall campaign could face nearly $13 million in fines, the Federal Communications Commission proposed Thursday. FCC officials proposed a $12.9 million fine against Utah resident Scott Rhodes, who they say made 827 robocalls between August 28th and August 30th, 2018 to Brooklyn, Iowa numbers. His message used slurs and urged residents to support the deportation of non-white immigrants. The Iowa calls, which used Brooklyn's local area code and prefix, were among half a dozen targeted attacks the FCC said Rhodes directed across the country in 2018. FCC officials say the calls violated the Truth and Caller ID Act. Tibbetts' family members were among those who received the calls just days after she was found stabbed to death. Christian Bahina Rivera, an undocumented Mexican immigrant, was charged with first-degree murder in the slaying. To add to this, Rhodes made other robocalls as part of five other campaigns in Georgia, Idaho, Virginia, Florida, and California. He is being given the opportunity to respond to the FCC allegations before further action is taken. As part of these campaigns, he attacked his hometown newspaper, the Sandpoint Reader, after it outed him as the robocaller. These robocalls called the paper's publisher a cancer and a degenerate bartender and finished by telling the recipient to burn out the cancer. So that was pretty intense little campaign that Scott was putting on. Now this update is sort of out of order from the rest of the updates to this case, but it's a little bit different in the fact that it's not really related to the case itself. It's more of something that was going on adjacent to the case. And I just thought it was fascinating. I had no idea this was even going on until I started researching some of this stuff. And I I couldn't believe, well, I can believe that somebody was out there doing these things, but it was just shocking to me when I saw that they were (laughs) proposing an almost $13 million fine on this guy. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it was 
just a whole propaganda slur, it sounded like. And lesson learned to all those out there that want to robocall people and harass them, you could be facing a huge fine, which I applaud <laughs> because I can't stand those calls. Regardless of what yeah. the origin of the call is, I absolutely hate them. Not only that, but this one was extra disgusting in the fact that it was extremely white nationalist and it was just degrading and the family members themselves got caught up in this campaign and it was, you know, fresh, fresh wounds, man. (laughs) This happened right on the heels of everything that was going on. And it was just, it's disgusting. She was, you know, murdered like a month and a half before this robocall campaign started. And they identified the murderer like a week before the robocall started. And You know, it was just a lot of emotions were flying high. That community was rallying around this case and working really hard to try and track down Molly's killer. Or at the time, they were trying to find Molly because they weren't sure she had died. Um, There were false reports of seeing her at truck stops and such. But yeah, it's just one of those things where you just, you, you see the scum of the earth. You know, we talk about the scum of the earth quite a bit in these cases, but you know, here's other degenerates outside of the outside of that and and these people are just as equally disgusting yeah i think degenerate's a good word for it because it, it it's just simply amazing the length that people will go to 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 take advantage of a situation no matter how disgusting or how foul it is they find a way to totally take advantage of a situation and, and use it to to either push their message or just try to really sway people's thinking i think is a lot of it especially with this white nationalist garbage yeah, absolutely. And a lot of these people, they, they're they like real-life phishing scams, you know, uh, that you see on the internet. It's just, you can never let your guard down no, anywhere. Absolutely not. On August 22nd, 2018, Rivera was charged with first-degree murder. The judge raised his bond from $1 million to $5 million when the prosecutor noted him as a flight risk. On August 24th, Rivera changed his legal counsel. Chad and Jennifer Fries, a married couple who normally work for different law firms, were privately retained by Rivera's relatives to represent him. On September 19th, Rivera pleaded not guilty. The Iowa Supreme Court has denied a motion to further review evidence from the case. The order comes after a judge in Poshwick County ordered a stay in the case. The stay was ordered when Bahena Rivera's attorney filed a request to have the court's decision on a suppression motion reviewed by the Iowa Supreme Court. His trial was set to begin on Tuesday, February 4th in Woodbury County. The defense made claims that Rivera was not properly Mirandized. The court agreed any statements made between 11.30 p.m. August 20th and early on August 21st should be suppressed. His defense had also stated that he was coerced into giving a confession with the promise of leniency. However, the courts have ruled that he was not. Following the capture of Bahena Rivera... Many people began politicizing the case, leveraging it as a chance to show illegal immigration is bad for the country. We're not going to get into politics here, but it is worth noting this was a major issue surrounding the immediate aftermath of his arrest. So in a similar vein to the robocaller, politicians, media, etc., were all all over this case uh, trying to use it to politicize things and push their agendas. So I thought that was a little disgusting and extremely distasteful in this case. Uh, maybe there were some valid points here or there uh, on on either side, but I, I don't really want to get into the politicization of this. I feel like politics is pervading everything anymore, and uh, let's just uh, step aside. Right. I totally agree. And that's going to be a hard uh, bullet to dodge for the next, what, eight, nine months? So we'll do our best. <laughs> no kidding. All right. Moving on to the next case, the Toolbox Killers, case number nine. 
From the Daily Breeze, Lawrence Bittaker, one of two South Bay men convicted of kidnapping, raping, torturing, and killing five teenage girls in 1979, has died at the age of 79 from natural causes on San Quentin's death row, officials announced Monday. Bittaker and Roy Norris, 71, of Redondo Beach, were partners in the horrific string of murders. Over a span of five months, from June to October of 1979, the victims, some of them hitchhikers, ranged from 13 to 18 years old and were from the South Bay, Long Beach, and San Fernando Valley. The notorious pair who terrorized the region were dubbed the Toolbox Killers. Bittaker, who in the words of one state Supreme Court justice displayed astonishing cruelty, was convicted of the grisly murders and condemned to death in March of 1981. He died at about 4 p.m. Friday at San Quentin State Prison, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation officials said Monday. Most of Bittaker's victims were strangled, with two stabbed in the head with ice picks. Evidence showed they also used vice grips, wire hangers, and a sledgehammer to torture the girls. He used a tape recorder to document one of the victim's dying screams, evidence that was played at his 1981 trial, and elicited tears from jurors and others in Torrance Superior Court. Among them was a veteran prosecutor, Stephen Kay. Kay, who also helped in the prosecution of Charles Manson, described Bittaker as more savage than Manson. I'm upset that he beat the system, Kay said in an interview Monday. He died a natural death something that his victims didn't have a chance for. They had their whole lives ahead of them. They never got to get married, have children, or grandchildren. The last thing they saw on earth were these two monsters. Bittaker's victims were Lucinda Schaefer, 16, of Torrance, Jacqueline Lamp, 13, of Redondo Beach, Jackie Gillum, 15, of Long Beach, Andrea Hall, 18, of Tujunga, and Shirley Ledford, 16, of Sun Valley. Most of them were plucked off the streets in South Bay. The two men who met in prison drove a van scouring the coastal areas in search of their victims. The pair took the girls to isolated mountain areas, including the San Gabriel Mountains, where they were tormented and killed. Two of the bodies were never found. Norris pleaded guilty to all counts against him and agreed to testify against Bittaker in exchange for prosecutors not seeking the death penalty, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations officials said. He cooperated with prosecutors and was sentenced to serve 45 years to life in prison with the possibility that he would someday be paroled. From CBS LA out of Los Angeles, one of the two men known as the Toolbox Killers, responsible for the 1979 murders of five teen girls in Southern California, has died. Roy Lewis Norris passed away from natural causes Monday at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, according to the State Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. He was 72. His death came a little more than two months after his partner in the crimes, Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker, who died on death row at San Quentin State Prison at the age of 79. So this update came out hot today. You sent this one over to me this morning, which was just timely. The uh, age reported for Norris, I believe, was 71 in the original article from just a couple months ago. So it seems like he's had a birthday since then. But man, good riddance. I completely and totally agree. When we did that case, I I think we were both of the thinking of why were these guys, based on the horrific acts that they performed on these girls, why were they not sentenced to death? And why were they still sitting on in prison this many years later? I mean, they should have they should have been put down a long time ago. No kidding. And I know that pretty recently, I think the current governor of California. And I apologize if that's slightly off, but I think that's the case. Uh, he said they were not going to perform the death penalty. That is right now. that is correct. And I think we talked about that at the conclusion of our Golden State Killer series. So I don't know, but man, if two dudes ever deserved it, it was those guys. Yeah, absolutely. There, There's no doubt in my mind that just the amount of evidence and like we discussed during the original case, the, the audio recordings that were retained for FBI training to 
desensitize them to the horrific things that they may see in the field. It's just, it's just astonishing that these guys weren't both sentenced to death. I mean, I know that California is fairly lenient on the death penalty, but they should have maybe took a second take on that one for this case. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm actually quite surprised those two also survived prison justice. With Bideker, I think he was, I mean, he was just absolutely crazy. I mean, we talked, didn't we talk about him receiving letters from fans and him writing them back and he would sign the letters pliers. So yeah, maybe there's nobody that really wanted to even come into close contact with these guys because of what they did. I mean, I know prison's rough and, you know, I'm sure there's a fair amount of individuals in there that don't care who they were or what they did. They may have tried to rough them up, but you know, there might've been some taboo around them. Like, you know, just stay away from these guys. You don't want nothing to do with them at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they're just, you know, two, two of the, two of the worst of humanity here, you know, just two disgusting, nasty individuals who clearly have no regard for human life. What do you think about them dying so closely together? You, you hear that with like that married, really married couples. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, that struck me. I, I think I texted you that like, wow, <laughs> that was a little close together there. But yeah, like you said, it's like married couples. You know, you hear like the wife passes away and the husband goes like a month later. Right. Exactly. It's almost like they Very were strange. It's almost like they were life partners. Like one died and the other one was just died of grief because his best buddy had passed away. It's weird. Yeah, it is absolutely strange. I don't know, um, but all I can say is good riddance. Yep, that's a final update on that case, hopefully. Unless they recover the remains of the other two women who weren't found. Yeah, that is true. And now for an update on the Pike County murders. The Pike County shootings took place on the night of April 21st to 22nd, 2016, when eight people, all belonging to the Rodin family, were shot and killed in four homes in Pike County, Ohio, near the village of Peebles, 50 miles from Chillicothe, and 60 miles from Cincinnati. Their bodies were found later on April 22nd. Seven of the victims, six adults, and a 16-year-old boy were discovered to have been shot execution-style in three adjacent houses, while the eighth victim, an adult, was found shot to death in his camper in nearby Piketon. Three young children, including two infants, were left alive during the killings. At least two shooters are believed to be responsible. On November 13th, 2018, the suspects accused of murdering eight family members in Ohio were taken into police custody. 47-year-old Billy Wagner was arrested in Lexington, Kentucky. The suspects are all members of the Wagner family from South Webster. There's George Billy Wagner III mentioned before. He was the father. He was arrested in Fayette County, Kentucky. Angela Wagner, 48, George's wife, was arrested at her home in Scioto County. George Wagner IV, 27, he was the son, was arrested during a traffic stop in Ross County. Edward Jake Wagner, 26, also the son, was arrested along with his brother during a traffic stop in Ross County. Rita Newcomb, 65, of South Webster, mother of Angela Wagner and Frederica Wagner, 76, of Lucasville, mother of Billy Wagner, are accused of perjury and obstruction of justice for allegedly misleading investigators. Newcomb also was charged with forging custody documents to cover up the crimes. In December of 2019, she pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of obstructing official business in connection with the investigation of the April 2016 homicides. In exchange, prosecutors dropped the forgery, obstruction of justice, and perjury charges against her. Two separate updates from WHIO. The first update, June 26, 2019. Charges of perjury and obstruction of justice are dropped against Frederica Wagner. And on September 16th of 2019, Angela Wagner caught reaching out to Jake Wagner, 
her son, and Rita Jo Newcomb, her mother, in violation of her gag order not to contact other co-defendants. She now can only contact her attorneys over mail and telephone. From Fox 19, on September 20th, 2019, the eldest Wagner brother appeared in court Friday morning for a motions hearing. The murder trial for George Wagner IV was originally slated to begin September 4th, but it was pushed back during his last pretrial hearing, July 24th, to an undetermined date. During that hearing, Wagner's defense attorneys accepted two terabytes of evidence from the state and Pike County Circuit Court Judge Randy Deering gave them more time to prepare for their case. The prosecutor, who calls this one of the most complex criminal cases in state history, says there are more than two million items on the disk. The evidence includes documents, recordings, videos, pictures, cell phone records, and forensic reports. Friday morning, Deering went through a number of motions, including one about the amount of evidence the defense is still trying to comb through. So to sidestep for just a moment here and interject, I work in IT for a living, and I deal with mountains of data as part of my job. That two terabytes of data is an extreme amount of data to go through. I mean, extreme. This case is gargantuan, and I believe it's the most expensive in the state of Ohio's history. It's just so you can kind of, you know, two million items to go through. I mean, think about that. Mm. Two million. Yeah. that, And that's something that they need to lay eyes on and read through. It's not two million things you just catalog and move through your day. That's two million items you need to assess and understand. Yeah, that, that is an astronomical amount of data. For sure. And I can't even imagine how long it's going to take prosecutors and investigators to go through that much data. Oh, I mean, months and months and months. Yeah, I, I was getting ready to say maybe a couple of years. I don't know. Maybe I'm off base. You know, it, it is a metric F ton of data, <laughs> for lack of better terms. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's a scientific term, a metric shit ton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's, a, that's a scientific Craig term. <laughs> that's right. Special prosecuting attorney Angela Kanipa agreed that two terabytes of information would take months to comb through, and she said that the state had agreed to provide focus on the evidence to the defense to help them narrow down what they need to analyze before the trial. The 27-year-old Wagner, along with his father Billy, mother Angela, and younger brother Jake are accused of the execution-style murders of eight members of the Roden family. The victims are Christopher Roden, 40, his older brother Kenneth Roden, 44, his cousin Gary Roden, his former wife, Dana Lynn Roden, 37, and their children, Clarence, Frankie Roden, 20, Hannah May Roden, 19, Christopher Roden, Jr., 16, and Frankie's fiance, Hannah Gilley. His younger brother, Jake, father and mother, all appeared in court for their own motions hearing throughout the week. During a previous hearing, his attorneys made an admittedly unusual request. They asked if it would be possible for George IV to be moved back into solitary confinement he spent time in solitary confinement following his initial arrest, but had since been moved to a regular cell. His attorney said the request had nothing to do with how he was being treated or his safety. George IV made the request through his attorney because he wants to be able to read the Bible and do the things that he likes to do, his attorney said. From WHIO, on November 6, 2019, investigators returning to a horse farm owned by the family to further investigate... Former Attorney General Mike DeWine, now governor, said a custody battle involving Sophia, the younger daughter of one of the victims, Hannah Mae Roden, and one Jake Wagner, uh, played a central role in the killings. December 4, 2019. Rita Newcomb accused of forging custody documents and lying to a grand jury and investigators to cover up the Roden family murders pleads guilty to a lesser charge, obstruction of official business, and a deal with prosecutors. 
It's not a good Christian thing to lie, so I didn't want to do that anymore, she said. George Billy Wagner III had not appeared in a Pike County courtroom since September 17th when he shared a court date with his youngest son. On December 9th, Billy Wagner's hearing Monday went the same way his previous hearing in September went, run-of-the-mill motions hearings discussing multiple small items such as sharing of information between the prosecution and defense. The defense asked for an extension on the deadline to file substantive motions, and Judge Randy Deering agreed. Wagner's attorneys said that they needed more time to go through their files and evidence that they have compared to what the prosecution has. On February 10th, Edward Jake Wagner, the youngest, waived his right to a speedy trial, which means it could be more than a year until the trial. Separately, Wagner's attorney raised concerns about jailhouse snitches, saying inmates at the Franklin County Jail where Wagner is being held are trying to get information out of him about the case. Jake Wagner, together with his mother, father, and brother, are all charged with aggravated murder and planning and killing the Roden family on April 22, 2016. They face 22 criminal charges, including eight counts of capital murder. In addition to murder charges, Wagner is also charged with unlawful sexual conduct with a minor for having sexual contact with Hannah Roden when she was 15 and he was 20, according to this indictment. His next court appearance is scheduled for April 8th. That was a lot to get through. There are four people being charged with murder here, and they're all running simultaneously, and it's a lot to digest. But what do you make of the updates since we covered this case last? I'm not surprised by the Jake Wagner waiving his right to a speedy trial, wanting to drag his feet. I'm sure there'll be more information come out about the jailhouse snitches and them trying to get information out of him about the case. I'm not sure why that they would be concerned unless they're some kind of informant inside, but you know who knows. But yeah, that's no joke. There's a lot of stuff going on here and a lot of wheels turning, and it's happening right now. The next court appearance is April 8th, so all of this stuff is in motion as we speak. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I mean, this did happen almost, it'll be two years ago, or no, I'm sorry, four years ago. Gosh, where'd time fly? Four years ago in April. So that, I mean, that's the time we've already been spending, you know, waiting on this thing. So I'm not sure when it will go to trial for everybody involved. And, uh, you know, some of the folks on the outskirts, like Rita Newcomb and such, they've already been, you know, kind of, they've gone through the system and pled down to lesser charges. Just based on the the amount of data and with everything that's going on right now, I have a feeling that we're probably going to be updating this case for a couple more years at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to our final update for this episode we are headed back to California, where we talk about the latest on the Golden State Killer. So just to recap very briefly, since this was such a long case, the Golden State Killer, he was the serial killer, serial rapist and burglar who started as the Visalia Ransacker, then moved on to the East Area Rapist, then on to the original Night Stalker. And finally, once all of those were all tied together, the Golden State Killer uh, committed at least 13 murders and more than 50 rapes and over 100 burglaries from 1974 to 1986, and that is just what we know about. From the Sacramento Bee, prosecutors want approval of the search warrant from Sacramento Superior Court Judge Steve White at 8.26 a.m. on February 3rd and plan to obtain swabs of his cheeks the next morning at the Sacramento County Main Jail, court records say. The order signed by Judge White authorizes force to be used if Mr. D'Angelo refuses to comply with the taking of the buccal swabs, according to documents filed by D'Angelo's public defenders, who complained that they learned of the attempt on extraordinarily short notice. The warrant was provided to defense counsel more than five hours later at 1.51 p.m. on February 3rd. The defense wrote in a motion to stop the warrant from being served. 
Prosecutors agreed to hold off until the end of the day on February 4th, but White ultimately ordered them to hold off pending a hearing on the matter March 12th. Court documents indicate the new DNA samples were to be used to help with the preliminary hearing now scheduled to begin May 12th, one that is expected to include as many as 150 witnesses and last 8 to 10 weeks. If the preliminary hearings find enough evidence to try D'Angelo, his trial will take place in Sacramento with the help from five other counties. D'Angelo, age 74, was arrested at his Citrus Heights home in April of 2018 after authorities spent decades searching for a suspect suspected of a string of murders, home invasions, and rapes between 1974 and 1986 in Sacramento, Contra Costa, Orange, Santa Barbara, Tulare, and Ventura counties. So, you know, we talked, we did a huge series on this case, and, you know, eventually the whole uh, genetic genealogy discovery happened and they caught D'Angelo and they brought him in and we've been, you know, waiting since April 2018. So we're coming up on two years on that case, you know, where nothing really has happened in these hearings. He's been to the court several times. It's been mostly a bunch of motions to try and do things like bar the media from, you know, being in the courtroom at the time of the case. That's, you know, stuff his defense has been trying to do. They've also you know, been trying to push things back because there's just like such a mountain of evidence similar to the Pike County murders, except this is from 74 to 86 and spans a lot more time. So there's probably, I I would have to imagine similar amounts of data to comb through in this case. But so the judge had ruled to uh, speed up this trial a bit because the, uh, the victims in this case were so old and also the defendant is so old that he wants to move this along sooner than later because of, you know, the age of the victims. And he felt that, you know, they, they deserve their, their time to see justice served. Some of the victims have passed away. Some of them are super, super old now in their seventies and eighties. And so he just wants to get things moving. And the only thing that really kind of caught me off guard with the update that was provided from this case was I'm not sure why they have to have a motion to force him to give a DNA sample because I thought when we were going through all those lengthy discussions on this case that and maybe I'm completely incorrect and not remembering what we discussed but I thought it was a requirement for California inmates to it was mandatory for them to give a a DNA swab when they were processed into the system I'm not sure why they have to get a new motion to get a fresh DNA sample from D'Angelo I'm not sure how it works exactly, but maybe it has to do with he's not like officially char like he's not officially sentenced to jail. Okay, he's just held till his trial, and I don't know if there's a difference there. There may be some nuance. I'm obviously we're not lawyers, so right. you know <laughs> who knows. But yeah, it's it's one of those things where there probably is some sort of process around it. But I think the key here is they are granted the authority to use force. I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, he's an old man. Shouldn't take much force to get a, a spit swab from him. You never know, man. This guy, is, he's one crafty SOB. So who knows what, what he would do and what he's like in jail. If you watch some of these videos of him appearing in court, he definitely, I mean, there's just something about this guy. He just has a look about him. Not even, you know, if you didn't even know that he had committed all of these crimes, you would still think like, something's just off with this dude. Yeah. And we talked about that. All of a sudden he appears in court and from witness testimony and some of the facts that we covered, he he's an older guy, but he was in really good shape. 
He was always riding his motorcycle, working in his garage, doing yard work and stuff, and didn't appear to be impaired or, you know, physically impaired in any way to do stuff, even at his age. But then all of a sudden he shows up in court and he can't even walk into the courtroom. They wheel him in with a a wheelchair and he's kind of slouched over a little bit. Yeah, well, and now he's he's been coming in, walking in. However, he is extremely thin now and he looks very old and sickly Hmm. and i don't know there were reports back when these crimes were happening like if you would see like composites he would always look a little bit different and sometimes he would be described as being heavier and then sometimes he'd be described as being thinner and muscular and that's there's nothing scientific about that but perhaps because it's such a subjective thing and and you're dealing with people trying to describe a perpetrator after a serious offense and you know human memory is just not that great and everything's subjective, but perhaps he was kind of a shapeshifter in a sense where he would try to disguise his his build a little bit so that way it was throwing police off. Like for, you know, one of these, you know, a couple months stretch, he's, you know, twenty pounds heavier and then he goes through and tries to lose a bit of weight and then, you know, now he's a little bit thinner and, and more muscular and lean and then you know, maybe grows his hair out or wears a wig or who knows. But he seems like he's potentially capable of doing those things and I will be extremely fascinated to hear what evidence prosecution the prosecution has that they haven't really released publicly yet or some of the things that they can confirm that were suspected along those lines yeah once they actually get to the trial that's going to be that's going to be some good stuff and i'm hoping we can can provide a lot of information on that when we get to that point for sure and as far as the shape shifting and stuff i totally agree i think it's almost like he goes through these phases to kind of change his self to the current environment, whether he's committing a burglary, you know, committing a rape, murdering. Now he's in court, he's locked up, he's being held. It may be just another phase of what he's, you know, transitioning to, to fit in more to his surroundings. Maybe he's trying to make people feel sorry for him. I, I don't know. Well, that's what it seems like. It seems like he's trying to change his appearance to seem more frail and like he couldn't possibly have done these things. And just appear in a position of weakness in order to try and leverage the situation the best that he can. That's what it seems like. It could all be coincidental. There were reports that when he first got booked in, he was like ramming his head into the wall and like trying to kill himself or something to that effect. And, you know, those are all rumors right now, but it's just interesting. You know, he comes in and he's the reports were when they arrested him, he was out like a couple days before, you know, flying down the street on his motorcycle, no regard for speed and just like, a complete reckless abandon. And then, then you see him in court and he looks, you know, he's overweight, but like, you know what I mean? He has that healthy look about him. Right. Like, yeah, he's overweight, but he's active. Like you can tell he's doing his thing. And then suddenly he starts to appear super thin and gaunt and sickly looking. And it just seems like he's trying to play everybody. Yep. He very well could be. I mean, or it could be the fact that, I mean, when he was arrested and cuffed, he was worried about going back into his house to get that pot roast out of the oven. So you can, gar- you, <laughs> yeah. you can guarantee that motherfucker hasn't had a pot roast for two years in jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's eating those bologna sandwiches. Exactly. Cold cuts. That's right. All right. That's it for us for this week. We'll be back soon with a new case. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at killer underscore podcast. You can hit us up on Facebook, the Killer Podcast Facebook group or on Instagram, at KillerPodcast, all one word. And, or, you can also shoot us an email with any case reaction, suggestions, comments, uh, hate mail, whatever you want. 
uh, send that on over to killerpodcast at gmail.com. Craig, any parting words? Nope, no parting words here other than I'm looking forward to the next case and version 2.0 of the show. I think we're going to have a really good time and we're going to have a lot of good content and ready to get this show back on the road. We are, and if you would do us a solid, if you could, recommend us to a friend. Spread the love. We appreciate you. We're glad to be back. Thanks to those of you who spent time uh, chatting with us on social media over the break since we last recorded. You know, this was a break we weren't intending to take for a long period of time, and it almost turned into not returning at all. So we're glad to be back, and we're glad to have you with us. So we look forward to speaking with you during our next case. Stay safe. stuck around you have found an easter egg craig and i are doing a post show after probably most shows barring time permitting and all that stuff um so i wanted to kind of touch on our hiatus if you will would you like to indulge me in that yeah i guess i mean what do you want to talk about what we did all this time off or yeah so uh i just wanted to give a little little background on what had had what had been going on um so Last that we recorded and published was May, June last year, I believe. So getting close to a year. So I was getting a little burnt out. My real jobby job that I have was hitting on all cylinders and they had us working just nonstop. I mean, we were just super busy. So that left me little time to to do this. Um, it's a lot of work to get in and do the research, to write it up, then to record it and edit it and publish it. It is a lot of work. It's fun, but it's a lot of work. And, uh, when all that was going on, I just burnt out and I was burnt out at my work. I was burnt out doing this and I needed a break. So Craig and I decided we would take a little bit of a hiatus, but we didn't plan to take a long one. And, uh, in the meantime, the wife and I had, uh, conceived, kid number two, uh, but then we lost it. Um, so that was pretty rough. So after that, I just really wasn't motivated to do this at all. And, uh, and since then we have conceived child number two again, and things are going very well and we are due sometime in June. So, um, you know, that was a little bit of what was going on in my life. And I know you had some similar things at your jobby job as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Things never slow down on the the uh, job side. I don't think for either one of us, to be honest. There's, it's always busy. And then life always has those curveballs. You had some you know, pretty devastating news there mid last year, but everything is good and you know, heading in the right direction now. I don't want to say the right direction, but in a happy direction. <laughs> yeah, it actually feels different. Like 2019, to me, I've never had this happen in my life. You know, I've always been very, very fortunate, very lucky. And I've, you know, I have obviously had ups and downs, but last year was like a just nonstop onslaught of just crap. And it was just a crappy year. And I, I don't know what it was, but the whole year felt wrong and on so many levels. And I just never felt like myself. I never felt like I had 
I don't know. I never had a good balance of, you know, work and life. And I'm somebody who needs to create things. I need to be like doing things and um, that fulfills me. But when I get out of sorts and then I can't dedicate my time to doing the creative stuff and I'm trying to stretch myself too thin, you know, things just felt off the entire year. Uh, But 2020 has felt like a complete 180 you and I both got promotions at work, which is freaking awesome. Um, I think this is the first time in my life I've ever had a promotion within the same job. Now I've promoted two other jobs where I've kind of like, you know, applied and got, got the job, uh, which would be like an increase for me, but to actually be promoted within the same role. That was the first time I think that's ever happened to me in my work career, which is kind of funny. It's the same. It's the first time for me as well in the same role at the same company. It, It seemed like there for a while, if you wanted to advance, if you wanted to, you know, get what you felt like you were worth earning on the market, you had to move every three to four years. That's just kind of how it felt. So I think you know, things are settling in with my company now. I got, like you said, got a promotion to the next level. You know, with that comes more responsibility. But I mean, it's good. I, it's it's a good transition for me because I was starting to feel that burnout on the work side, and I didn't want to have to start looking around again because I absolutely hate that. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst. Uh, I was feeling kind of the same way, admittedly. Um, You know, I was thinking I was ready and deserving to be pushed up in my current job. And if I didn't get it, I probably would have started to look around. Um, Not that I would have done anything about it, because I really do like love my job and I love the team that I'm with. And I work with a lot of very talented people, but in which I haven't actually ever experienced in any other job where I don't dislike a single person on my team. Every single person is cool and they're all very helpful. And it's a pretty large group of people. They're just very good at hiring like talented, smart individuals, which is awesome. But yeah, so it was just, it was getting tough. And I think a lot of it had to do with just my 2019 mindset, just being, you know, tossed to the side. This year has already turned around and uh, you and I were able to get back on the same page, get running on some shows again, which is awesome. I'm super excited about it. I think uh, the plan going forward is to kind of cut the shit at the beginning of the show, get to the point, get in and out, be done. And then if you guys want to stick around and listen to Craig and I BS, if we feel like it, that, you know, that episode or whatever, we'll be here because we also like to just talk shit. And I always like listening to podcasts where the hosts are real and where you get to connect with them. I find that fascinating. Some people don't, and that's fine. Everybody's different. So if you're one of those people, you'll probably stick around and listen to us. And Yeah, it's going to be a good time. And I completely agree. There's some shows you listen to that it sounds like you're listening to a robot read a, read a script. They don't never say anything about their self personally. They don't share any stories or moments or something that has impacted the way they feel about a certain thing. And I think that's that that's a positive for us in this show, and I agree. Cut the cut the BS out at the beginning because we were getting some complaints about it. Not that I care if anybody knows me or have read my comments in the past. They know I absolutely don't give a crap. But <laughs> you know, it's it's good to get get the show out of the way for those people that want to hear it. Get right into it. Yep. Give them the story. Give them the case, and then, like you said, if we feel like shooting the shit after we're done, if we go back to some four AM recordings, I don't know how often that'll happen, but. <laughs> But yeah, right. It's good just to, it's it's a good deep impression too, because especially if it's a really bad case and you really get to thinking about it and trying to, to provide your perspective on it, it's good just to have a, like a release time after the fact to decompress and just get back out of that, that gear that you were in when you were covering the case. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, and it's just, 
it's fun uh, to interact with the audience later. We've had a lot of good conversation with things that we were saying that were like little personal stories or, you know, we get a lot of feedback on that stuff where it connects with a certain person and how they might be feeling at that time. And I just really enjoy that, um, that communication. And, uh, you know, um, I think on some more exciting news for us, you know, you and I, I we're, we're taking it very seriously and we, we're kicking it up and, we plan to build a business around this. And I think to do that, we need to be direct to the audience up front and then provide whatever we want on the side. And we appreciate those of you who listen and hopefully you can help us evangelize the product and get it out to more people. It would be great to do this full time as a job <laughs> instead of the other job we have. But I, and I, I love doing both. So, you know, whatever happens is, is awesome, but we appreciate the love and support for those people who have hung with us this yeah exactly it was, it was really good to see that there was some people out there that were were happy that you're coming that we're coming back that that was a good feeling and you know as far as spreading the love too i, I think the probably the hardest thing that i have with with doing this is going out there and asking people to promote it to evangelize it to get out there and tell their friends because I, i've always been you know i want it to grow organically but to get to that next level or where we want to be, we have some specific goals on, you know, how far, how much content we want to put out, you know, how many downloads we want to get, just basic, the metrics of the whole thing, where we want to go. It's going to take some work and it's going to definitely take some help from the listeners too. Yeah. I'm, it's, it's one of those things, um, you know, just, we need to work hard and, and push it up the hill. Yeah. We definitely don't want to go down the hill, like in the Delphi case, down the hill, <laughs> down the hill. <laughs> that's right hey uh i wanted to to end this on a light-hearted note so you told me a story a few months ago and it's been resonating with me oh, ever no. since and i was dropping my son off at preschool today and on my way home we were trading a few texts about getting ready to record and uh i just started laughing to myself hysterically in the car out loud which i don't <laughs> do very often can you tell the audience this story about you at a, I believe it was a high, a high school football game and what went down? Oh my God. I was sitting here for a second. Like what story are you talking about? Cause we, we share a <laughs> lot between the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This one is, it's funny and it's not too embarrassing, but I laugh. I laugh to myself about this. Just knowing you, <laughs> just, this story just cracks yeah, knowing me that it it absolutely one hundred percent happened. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can tell the story quick and then we can we can jump off. But what had happened was I'm the local high school where I'm at, where I live. I'm part of the band boosters program. My son is in marching band, and we we man the concession stands at all of the home football games. So one of my responsibilities is making sure I'm I'm like the runner. I make sure everything's stocked. We have two different locations at the football field. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time running, running stuff back and forth. Well, in this one case, it was getting towards the end of the game. And usually, I mean, admittedly, if you've listened to other shows, I am a little bit older, getting a little bit more tired at the end of the night from, you know, lugging cases of drinks and things like that. But the, the second stand, they needed more pizza they had sold out. So like, oh, I'm, okay, I'll run it over. But I'm really tired. I'm just thinking of a million things that I got to do when I get back. So I, so I take a shortcut right in front of the student section of the football stadium. There's a little path along the running track. So I got the pizzas. I'm going down through there. You know, then obviously you got a bunch of high school kids, probably 
150 to 200 of them up there cheering on the football game or whatever. And then the first couple rows see me walking along. I've got this gigantic stack of pizza. And it's like all the kids started yelling, hey, we'll take some pizza. Pizza sounds good and blah, 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 whatever they were saying. And I'm just wanting to get over there, drop it off and get back and not even thinking. And I'm like, okay, bunch of high school kids. I'll just give them the rock on sign. I hold up my hand and, you know, hold up the two fingers for a second. But then something snapped in my mind and I don't even know why it happened, but I went from the devil horns to the middle finger and the front and the, <laughs> in the front two rows of the student section just went absolutely dead quiet. And in that very split second, when I realized what I had done by holding up my finger, they got quiet. I put it down and I didn't even look at my side. I just walked straight ahead, dropped off the pizzas and I took the long way back out around. So I wouldn't be seen again because I was afraid I was going to start getting shit thrown at me. <laughs> But that, yeah, I, I, w- I wasn't in my right mind delivering pizzas that night. <laughs> I was tired. I was oh ready to God. go home. And them yelling in my ear, I, I wanted to say, oh, yeah, that's cool, rock on or whatever. But I think in the back of my mind, I was really wanting to say, fuck you. Leave me alone. <laughs> you just gave him the whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. <you're- laughs> I... I hope nobody had their cell phone camera out for that. I've not seen any footage of it, so. (laughs) Well, you still have a job, so you didn't get canceled, which is pretty awesome. Well, it's a volunteer job, too. Let's be fair, but still, I didn't get called by the school principal or any crazy stuff like that. Hey, uh, we hear you were flipping the student section off. Oh, my God. I. (laughs) Crying. (laughs) I just can imagine, like. You're so, how often are you flipping people off that like that's your well, reflex yeah. instead of giving yeah, them the no horns sh- you just give them the finger and take off and it's not even on purpose you're not no, even mad it, at them it just happens you just fl- give them the finger and you're out it was like an involuntary twitch boom <laughs> finger and I realized what I was doing and I was like oh my god what the hell did I just do <laughs> oh. Oh, to answer that god. question i flip people off in the car quite a bit i have been known to have pretty bad road rage and people that don't know how to drive they usually see the finger they either see the <laughs> finger or if the kids are in the car they'll see the thumbs up and they know exactly what that means because they know the kids are in the car <laughs> yeah exactly so i don't know i just that <laughs> i think about that story probably like once a oh week now god. and just spontaneously bust out laughing just craig in front of a crowd of people like Craig's a really quiet dude and until you get to know him and then he just, you know, then he opens up, but he's like me. We're both pretty quiet. You know, we don't really enjoy being the focus of attention or don't do yeah. well in crowds. Probably <laughs> I'll speak for myself. You know, I'm not a huge public no, speaker either. Um, <laughs> so, so the fact that you just <laughs> full on bust out, bust out the middle finger. Yeah, oh, I equate God. that almost to be, let's say somebody that, I am very quiet, pretty reserved, pretty introverted or whatever. Sometimes you won't know it on the show because I'm going to put my foot in my mouth and say some stupid shit. I'm sure that's going to happen sooner than later. But yeah, I equate that to like being the Boy Scout troop leader and then just walking out and flipping all the kids off for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, oh man, too good. All right. Well, that's it for this week. If uh, if you want to salute Craig and give, give him the whatever pal, feel free to send it his way. All right, guys. Yeah, have real a good quick. One. That that honestly is a great idea. If everybody that that hears the after show wants to flip me off on social media, please feel free. Send me the finger. <laughs>
Yeah, pass pass him the whatever pal. <laughs> Double whatever pals even. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. Catch you later.